A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and our cases this week. It's a horrible end for a missing girl from Paradise, Texas. Days after an Amber Alert was issued to find the missing seven-year-old, police announced that they have found her body and that her killer has confessed. Police say that a FedEx driver delivering a package to the girl's rural home is allegedly the one who kidnapped and murdered the girl. But first, it's been three weeks since four college students were stabbed to death in Moscow, Idaho. And despite the FBI's involvement, the national media attention, and all of the web sleuths who are working round the clock, police say they still don't know who killed them or why. Police have made a few statements, but the ones that they've made sound like they contradict one another. The families of the victims are starting to worry that the investigation has grown cold and the parents are starting to do more interviews and sharing more information with the goal of solving this case. We are recording this on Wednesday, December 7th of 2022, and our guest today is Lonnie Coombs, a CNN legal analyst, author, true crime host, and a former criminal prosecutor. Lonnie, welcome to the program. Thank you. It is so nice to be back with you. Oh, we love having you. We know how busy you are. In fact, last time you were here, you know, you were you were watching a verdict coming in. I know you're watching other verdicts today in the Weinstein <laughs> case. You're just like, so we're so thrilled to have you. Um, and I always appreciate your thoughtfulness and your comments on these cases because your experience and your gut is mm. always right. Mm. And so... I can't wait to hear this case. Uh, we were talking before we started recording. You know, we we cannot believe, and we are very stunned that the case in Idaho has not moved forward. We have four students dead. And, and the shocking thing is that the house that they lived in, Lonnie, it's not like it was in a remote area. I mean, I've looked at pictures of this house from every side. There's a house on either side, in front, in back. It's close to town. How is it possible no one heard anything? No one saw anything? How were there no security cameras, ring doorbells? I don't understand, Lonnie. Yeah, I think just on the face of it, people are shocked for that reason. One, it seems like somebody should have seen something and the police have been very aggressive in asking the public for their help to come forward. They've laid out sort of, you know, where these um, victims were that night to sort of give a, an area of, to alert people. Hey, if you were in this area, let us know if you saw anything. Like you said, the house itself, you know, the crime scene is isolated to that house. And based on the type of killing here, you would think that there would be a lot of forensic evidence there to help the police. But so far, no answers yet. And how is that possible? You know, I was sure that within, you know, a week that there would be some arrest. But but what is disturbing to me and, and really unsettling, the, the comments that the police and investigators have made, they've said, well, we think this is targeted. But then we don't know, is the house targeted? Are the people targeted? Is one person targeted? And then, you know, if you think it's targeted, then everyone else in this small town is like, uh, okay, well then, so maybe we don't have a killer on the loose and then police walk it back. State police say one thing, local police say another. It's, it's, it doesn't give me a lot of confidence is what I'm trying to say. 
Well, I'll tell you, Anna, my first red flag was at the very beginning when this case broke and the local police said there was no imminent threat to the community. How in the world can you say that in any murder case unless you already know who did it? So there is no reason why any police department should ever tell the community there is no imminent threat to you unless they've solved the case, essentially. And as soon as they said that, I was like, oh boy, I thought right then they might be in over their head. So I was glad to see that the state police, that the FBI have all joined in. But even with their help, we aren't seeing or hearing about any real steps forward yet. No, we haven't. And I can really sense the frustration of the parents. They have been very quiet, understandably so. The little that has been shared with them, they haven't shared with the public, but that is changing because the parents are frustrated and so they're going directly to the public and they're they're giving us some information. Whether that is going to make a difference, it's possible. When you start putting some information out there, if you are the killer, you may start feeling the pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't say that I blame them. Yeah. You know, that's such an interesting point that you bring up on is how these, how the social media is impacting criminal investigations in ways that, you know, we didn't have to think about in the past, you know, when we didn't have to worry about that. I remember way back um, on the Mel Gibson DUI, this is back in, I think, the 90s out of Malibu. And this was my first understanding of really when social media got involved, because we started getting, and this is really before social media, but we were getting phone calls because he was a celebrity of witnesses who had seen him at the bar that night before. And, you know, other things that the police had not gathered that evidence themselves, but but the citizens were coming forward with this information and some of it was you know, helpful to the case. And so that was my first awareness of, wow, there are things, people out there who see things who law enforcement may never come in contact with on their own. The flip side of that is now, you know, the police get inundated with thousands of tips on these big cases and they have to wade through all of them. So sometimes that takes a lot of their very important time just wading through which ones actually, you know, are significant or not. Absolutely. Let's let's talk a, a little bit about the victims here and the circumstances and what we know. Here's the other thing. Lonnie and I were talking before we started recording. We are not going to include some wilder, unsubstantiated speculation because the problem is because there's such an information void and vacuum here. We don't want to add to that. So there may be things you all want to talk about. You can you can start a conversation on YouTube if you want to with this podcast, but we're going to keep it as narrow as possible because we don't want to make anything any worse than it is, right? Yeah. The coroner says the victims appear to have been stabbed in their sleep, but a few did have defensive wounds. The murder victims are 21-year-old Kaylee Conclavis, 21-year-old Madison Mogan, 20-year-old Zanna Kernodal, and 20-year-old Ethan Chapin. The four were murdered in a three-story off-campus home in the early morning hours of November 13th of this year, 2022. The timeline spans from Saturday night when all of the young people were out to Sunday morning when they were found dead. Now, um, Ethan, who is Zana's boyfriend, does not live at the house, but everyone says spent a ton of time there, would sleep over a lot, so nothing unusual there. 
And the students were renting a home on King Road, which is about a five-minute walk from the fraternity row. And reports say that everyone was a member of the Greek system in the house. And, you know, again, it's Saturday night and everyone's out. I mean, there's absolutely nothing unusual about that, right, Lonnie? Nothing unusual, but it also, for investigation purposes, really opens the door to these victims having a lot of contact with a lot of different people that evening. So, you know, it, it, it broadens the span of potential suspects, right? Apparently there was a football game that night and then the one couple was at a party, the two girls were at a bar. So they're seeing people constantly that night that could end up being suspects. So it really opens the door to, you know, a lot of potential suspects. And this is a small town. It is a college town. Moscow is about 25,000 people. And like you said, there there hasn't been a murder there in years. So that tells you a lot. I think, you know, I'm not criticizing the police department, but when you don't do a murder investigation in a really long time, there is a special skill set to that, don't you think? Absolutely. And, and even just, you know, sources to gather evidence from. Right. So like how many surveillance cameras are there around? You know, in some neighborhoods, there's surveillance cameras on every every door has one. But, you know, if this place has not had a murder in forever and when you hear about, you know, the different residents, they're like, we felt safe. You know, we never worried about our safety walking at night or anything. So not only does it go to the investigation, but it also goes to the behavior of the people involved and that, you know, their guard was down too, because they've never known anything like this in that area. Yeah. And again, every time I look at the video of the house, I'm like, it's surrounded by other houses. How could no one have heard or seen anything or picked anything up on any potential cameras there? Now, the four victims were not alone in the house. There were two other roommates who lived in the house. So the way it's been described is, and those two survived, these two girls say that they didn't hear anything, that they woke up Sunday morning and one of the other girls upstairs wasn't responsive. So then they call over a friend and then they call 911, which is a little odd. Um, This this is one of my big areas of question, Anna, because... um, First of all, they cleared those girls, right? As they have cleared many people already, which also is an interesting thing because usually it takes more time to clear uh, people that have some connection to the crime scene. But the way they've described this, you know, they slept on a different floor. And, you know, understandably, if you've been out and doing whatever and, you know, teenagers, college age kids, they can sleep pretty heavily and sleep. Oh, my God. Right. Until, you know, noon the next day. Um, but the the thing that I have a lot of questions about is the 911 call that was made when it was made. First of all, like you said, apparently they thought one of the girls who was dead was just unconscious. And then they call a number of friends over to sort of help them with this. Now, the way the crime scene has been described is a gruesome crime scene. When you're talking about a stabbing death, multiple stabs to the point where it's going to be a death, you're talking about blood. You're talking about a lot of evidence there. How do you get from that crime scene as it's been described by law enforcement to these young people saying they thought she was just unconscious? Was this perhaps because the crime scene after they were killed was staged in a way? by the killer were the bodies covered up in a way that these girls couldn't really tell the full extent 
of what had happened there. There's just a lot of questions there. And if it was staged, how is the killer taking so much time to stage the scene after they've just killed these four people? And then if they're that careful, why didn't they notice that there were two more people down on the bottom floor? So it raises a lot of questions about, you know, what did these two girls actually see? What did the crime scene actually look like? And the behavior of the killer or killers after the killings. Yes, I find that very troubling because the two girls who survived, who were not attacked and said that they were asleep, were on the first floor. Then the next two are on what I would call the middle floor, the second floor, which apparently is where the killer entered, according to one of the parents. And then on the top floor would have been Kaylee and Madison, Mm -hmm. the way it's been described. So... There are also some reports that the surviving girls who found the roommates never went all the way up to the third floor, but apparently calling and texting. And of course, Kaylee's not answering. So I don't know. You've got six people in the house plus a dog and two hear nothing, say they hear nothing, four are viciously murdered and the dog. Now, I... I've always said this, if only animals could talk because so many crime scenes, there is a dog or another animal present and you're always wondering like, what did they see? Did they react? So here's the thing. The dog, according to the police, was found unharmed in yet another room away from Kaylee and anyone else. Now, those of us with dogs, generally the dogs sleep with us. May Mm. not mean anything, but... Did the dog bark? Uh, Police said that they checked the dog for physical forensic evidence. I don't know what that means, you know, because, of course, did the killer take the dog and put the dog in the other room? Did was the killer known to the dog? So instead of barking, the dog is like wagging its tail like crazy, all happy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And if the killer or killers touched the dog after the crime, most likely there was blood on the killers, right? When you're, when it's a stabbing death, very often it gets very slippery and many times the killer's hand will slip on the blade itself or, you know, pick up blood from the victim's body. So it seems like if that happened after the killings, that there would be some type of evidence left on that dog. Yes, this part to me is so troubling, so troubling that there were so many people in the house, plus an animal, and I am not by any means suggesting that the two girls who lived there had anything to do with it. But what I am asking is, as you have, usually with these investigations, everyone is a suspect until they are not. And how do you know that they are not until you have fully investigated complicated relationships, history, cell phone records, talk to everyone involved, you know, Mm -hmm. triple checked alibis. Yeah. So let's continue. Let's get into the timeline. Um, So according to the information released by police, Kaylee and Madison, who were best friends were at a bar called the corner club and they were there probably they got there after 10 p.m on the evening of november 12th then the two are seen on video getting something to eat at a food truck at about 1 40 a.m a lot has been made about the food truck video 
Anyone who was anywhere in the vicinity, everyone started, you know, asking, could that be a suspect? You know, there's a lot of attention on that, as there should be because it's video, it's, it's, it's a timestamp. It's a proof of life. We know that they're alive. And they mm-hmm. seemed happy. I mean, they didn't seem particularly troubled. You right. Know? Right. I mean, it's it's very revealing, you know, to see what was their demeanor. What were they like? Were they a little bit tipsy? Were they, you know, talking to anyone? And so I, I think it's, you know, it's the voyeurism that we're all so fascinated with videos. And, and that one was so close to the time of death that it's, you know, people want to see it. Then they get a ride back to their home at about 2 a.m. Meanwhile, Zana and her boyfriend, Ethan, are at a party at Ethan's fraternity. Police believe that Zana and Ethan returned to the to the home, the girls' home, because Ethan didn't live there, around 1.45 a.m. Everything's a little bit loose, but what seems to be clear is that by 2 a.m., the house is full of people. Everybody's back. So that, I think, is very important because the police have said they think that the murders happened probably as no, no earlier than 3 a.m. because there was, but here's the other thing, because there was activity on Kaylee's phone. Police say that Kaylee repeatedly called her ex-boyfriend, Jack DeCur, several times and that the calls stopped at 2.52 a.m. And police say that Madison was also calling Kaylee's ex-boyfriend at the same time. Now, I would say to you, Lonnie... Uh, you know what? I'll let you say it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was like all over these phone calls as well. I was like, wait a minute. Who's this ex-boyfriend? Now we are, you know, we have bits and pieces of information and we don't know, you know, how accurate or credible this is, but apparently, you know, Kaylee's sister said that uh, in a report that they, you know, were longtime boyfriend, girlfriend, that they still got along and that she thought they might actually get back together at some point. And that it was common for Kaylee to repeatedly call somebody until she got a hold of them to ask them a question, whatever she wanted. It could be something really innocuous, like which outfit should I wear? But the interesting thing to me is one, it's late at night. Two, and apparently the sister said that's not uncommon either. But two, the roommate was also calling. So it wasn't just Kaylee. The roommate also wanted to get a hold of him. So they were both wanting to get a hold of him. So was it perhaps that they were concerned about something that they were calling for help? Like, hey, could you come over? You know, we're worried about this or we want to run this by you. This person said something Um, because if if it was a good relationship, this is somebody that she's very close to that she perhaps trusts. And, you know, so they're calling maybe for his input or for him to come help in some way. That to me would then signal that perhaps these two girls, for whatever reason, their level of concern was raised a bit. Because that's a lot of phone calls, you know, at two and three in the morning. It is. And again, that is very typical behavior of a young college student. You know, they're all up at the same time. And they, you're right. It could have been anything. It could have been concern. It could have been like, you're not going to believe what just happened kind mm-hmm. of moment. Yeah. Um, or it could be nothing. It could be nothing. But I, I would definitely think that law enforcement would be looking into that. Right. 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 And while there are a lot of calls and I'd be asking, well, you know, this generation loves to text so much. What was in there? Was there anything revealing in there, which we haven't heard? Um, But police believe that from their perspective that they were still alive at 2.52 a.m. I would just toss one more thing in there. 
because they were phone calls and apparently he didn't pick up. I mean, presumably they were calling, but what if they weren't the ones calling? What if it was the killer calling? Mm-hmm. Right? It's very possible because we don't know. Right. right. Could be wrong. Don't know. Um, but that's, and that- not an, that's not an uncommon thing we, we've seen, you know, killers do is that they'll send a text after someone's dead or leave a, you know, a phone call, not leave it a message so that people think that they're still alive beyond the timeline, the accurate timeline. So that is something that we've seen in past. It is. I think it's more dangerous. I don't think that the killer would be, it's a more dangerous thing for a killer to make an actual phone call and then not answer if the person does pick up. So that's why I think it's less likely that it was the killer. But again, we don't know. So. And remember too, I mean, there are other people in this house. Yes. So if the killer is taking that much time to be doing those kinds of things, you know, it, it seems like there would be some sense of urgency because there are potentially other witnesses there, right? Other people that this killer would have to deal with. Um, and, and that's just another point on it is what you're talking about killing four people. All of those people could wake up, fight you off, take you down, call for help. It's a very risky crime scene for the killer. Yes. Yes. And still, they got away with it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's possible that because everyone had been out that night that maybe they were just like, a, you know, perhaps slightly intoxicated, you know, so they were groggy in their sleep and were a little slow to react. But you know what? Young people are fast. I mean, you wake them up and they're like, they're ready to go in, yeah. in some instances. So, And the fact that um, Kaylee's father says that Kaylee and Madison were in a bed together sharing a bed. So how do you kill one of them without waking the other one? Exactly. And and that's supposed to be the most violent of all the crime scenes, according to the dad. Right. According to the dad, he also says that Kaylee was, at least his understanding, was stabbed more than Madison, you know, implying that perhaps she was the intended target, you know, and the other people were just potential witnesses, you know, that, that, the that the killer decided to take out. So, but we, that's all, you know, speculation. We don't know. No, we don't. There's so much that we don't know. So again, the two housemates unhurt in any of this sleeping on the first floor, they've been identified as Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen. Um, as we said, they get up the next morning, they call friends, they're like unresponsive. At 11.58 a.m., the call is made to 911 asking for aid for an unconscious person, not dead, not not breathing, but not they've been like dead blood. for- Not right. nothing like blood or anything, just unconscious. But they've been dead for hours, which means they were cold to the touch. Mm-hmm. Even if you couldn't see any blood and there were covers pulled up. Yeah. They would be ice cold. Yeah, that, that, that just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what that is about. I don't know if, you know, the police are giving, a, you know, sort of some misinformation uh, purposefully or what that is. But that that doesn't make sense to me. No, uh, the police have reported that there were several people who were on the call during this 911 Um you know, getting information and direction from dispatch while the police were on their way. So there was a lot of communication there, which has not been shared with the public. 
Officers say that they found the two victims on the second floor, and then they found the two more victims on the third floor. So the focus would have been that second floor scene is the first one that um, the cops found. Again, coroner says each victim was stabbed multiple times, some with defensive wounds. Uh, The coroner alleged that the victims were likely attacked in their sleep. It also noted that there was no sign of sexual assault on anyone. Which is significant. And also my understanding is all the stab wounds were in the chest area. So sometimes you see in these cases, the location of the stabbing is somewhat of a message, you know, of, of the motive of why the person was killing them. You know, they could hit certain areas of the body or mutilate certain areas of the body. Uh, but this all apparently what's being said is it was all similar. They were all stabbed in the chest and no sexual assault. So that takes out some other motives. Also, they say there was no sign of forced entry. So was the sliding glass door, if that's where they actually entered, as the father says, what Kaylee's father says, does that mean it was left unlocked? Did they have a key? I don't know. We don't know the answers to that. Was anything taken? Police, I don't believe have said whether anything's been taken or not or anything is missing. No, although early on when they were saying they were trying to, you know, when they were giving out information that they were backing away from later, one of the theories that they were saying possible motive was a a potential burglary. So I don't know if they were just throwing that out there, you know, that could have happened. They never said that anything was taken, that anything seemed out of place. But that's along with, you know, 5,000 other details that they haven't shared. So Mm -hmm. understandably, you know, I'm Mm -hmm. not saying they should at, at this point. And it is also possible that the killer or killers that this could have been random, didn't know them at all. It's very possible. Or there was a mistaken identity. I mean, I I covered a case in Michigan where a young woman was found stabbed to death in her home, also a dog there present. And for years and years, police had gone through everyone, every ex, everything. And then finally the case broke um, this year with the understanding after running a bunch of DNA that the people who broke in and police say really killed the girl, the young woman, actually were after her neighbors and they went to the wrong apartment and killed her instead and it was over some kind of drug deal gone bad. These were people who were never on the radar for police, ever. Well, and, and just think about it. It makes it that much more difficult, right? Because the investigation, they're looking for connections. They're looking for something that would bring them to that house even if it's a random person, why would they come to that house? And when that's the wrong assumption, then it really comes down to DNA, right? DNA is the saving grace uh, to investigations if you can finally get that match to someone, um, because otherwise it really is like looking for a needle in a haystack on some of those cases. Absolutely. And they haven't found the murder weapon. So presumably it's a knife. We don't know. It could be any variation on a knife, but that hasn't been found yet. Um, and The most important thing will be what if any, if there were defensive wounds, then my hope is that there will be DNA from the killer on those body parts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the forensic evidence is crucial in this case, and it's been about three weeks, so they should be starting to get the results back. You know, is there any DNA under the fingernails? 
of the victims. Uh, did they fight back to that extent? Is there blood from the defendant or from the suspect, the killer on any of these victims, which is, you know, a, a very great possibility. And again, this word that police have tossed out, targeted, even Kaylee's sister said, what does that mean? She says they're using this word in a way that is confusing everyone. Targeted how? The people or the house? And no one is really making that clear. So right. uh, again, there's a, sen a feeling, uh, there's a little lack of confidence that I have because of all of the walking back that police have done and then some statements that just don't make any sense. This clearing everyone so quickly troubles me, but maybe they know something that we do not. Let's hope. So let's talk more um, here about the information that the parents are revealing. Kaylee's father told ABC and Fox News that he believes that it was Kaylee who was the target because she suffered a more vicious attack. She had more stab wounds. And he's the one who revealed that Kaylee and Madison were in the same bed. He's the one who says police told him that the killer or killers entered on the second floor and that Kaylee and Madison were on the third floor. Here's more from Kaylee's dad, Steve, with his interview on Fox News. There's a couple things that tell me with common sense, but um, I'm not a professional, so I want to specify that. But they've said the entry point was the slider or the window. It was in the middle floor. So to me, he doesn't have to go upstairs. His entry and exit are available without having to go upstairs or downstairs looks like he probably may have not gone downstairs I, we don't know that for sure but he obviously went upstairs so i'm using logic that um he chose to go up there when he didn't have to and um i can kind of tell by my daughter's texts messages she did call 911 she wasn't uh saying anything along the lines of like she had heard something or she was in fear so I'm just putting the, the, the dots together. Lonnie, that is almost more information than we have received at any point in this investigation, what we just heard from Kaylee's dad. That's right. It's interesting that the police are telling the families some information. Um, the risk they take by doing that is that at some point the families will then share it, as this father did. But I can also understand the family's frustration um, about what the police are doing with this information, because in the father's mind, you know, there's some clear assumptions that should be made from that. You know, if why did the killer go all the way upstairs? You know, unless they didn't find what they were looking for on the first floor, the ground floor, the, the middle floor. Otherwise, why do they need to go up? And maybe that's why they didn't go down because they'd already found what they wanted on the top floor. So why did they go down? There are these assumptions, you know, that, that people want to make. But, you know, and the fact that he said that um, Kaylee suffered the more um, vicious attack, it could be because she was the main target or it could be because she was fighting back the strongest. And so the, the, the killer had to use more force on her. So there's these assumptions that we want to make to try and understand it, right? We all want to understand this, put the pieces together. But you can't be so bought into any one assumption that then you build a faulty you know, path from there. You have to keep all of the options open. Do you think that the police are just understaffed? Because, um, you know, usually by this point, surveillance video has been gathered or is in the process of gathering and, and it's starting to come to light 
who was where at what time. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are a lot of points for them to check because the four were on the move a lot. Mm -hmm. But I am troubled that all we seem to have is the food truck. Where are all the other security cameras? Yeah. You know, we keep being, being told that they have lots of law enforcement on this between the different agencies, the local agency, the state agency, the FBI. And I would think that, you know, sad but true, the cases that have media are the ones that get the attention. Right. You know, I did um, uh, an investigation into the missing and murdered indigenous women and what goes on there. And boy, there's if you don't have the attention of the media, you don't get this response, you know, yep. and I'm not saying it's a bad response. I just wish that every case got this kind of response. So we're being told there's a lot of people. But then again, the flip side of the public being involved is there's a lot of things, tips and information going on that, you know, some of the officers and deputies might be having to spend time on as opposed to the surveillance videos. But you're right. I, I would hope that they have a lot of surveillance video, but that they're not releasing it to the public yet. But on the other hand, they're asking the public for their help in this. Why not if they have a potential, you know, helpful video? Are they not releasing that to, to get try and get feedback from the public? So exactly yeah. like put something out there. It's like with the Delphi murder cases in Indiana when it, it took a while, but they finally released that short clip photo and video and then audio of a man on the bridge with Abby and Libby that was taken by Libby on the bridge these little pieces where you're like, okay, does anybody recognize him? Or if there's a location and you just say, all right, here's a video of, I don't know, the bar at 11, whatever, and say, does anybody have any video from this time that they can send us? And I realize that's going to make everyone go, oh, you know, <laughs> and then start focusing on that. Um, but clearly, I, 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 I don't know unless the forensics can come up with something and I'm hoping that it, that the DNA will, mm -hmm. I feel like how can you not have more videos and more security cameras of them, the house, the area at that time, things would have been slowing down at 3 AM in the morning. It should have been a lot more quiet at that point based right. on the pattern of, of everyone in the house. Now, Kaylee's father also said that he believes his daughter may have had a stalker. The police department has publicly confirmed that they did identify two males who were involved in an incident with Kaylee in mid-October. This is how the police described that incident. Two males were seen near a Moscow business. One of the males appeared to follow Kaylee inside the business and then continued to follow her out of the business as she walked to her car. Investigators have stated that they believe this occurrence with the two identified males, they know who they are, was an isolated incident. However, investigators are continuing to look into, into information regarding Kaylee's potential stalker and encourage those with information to call the tip line. So I read into that. Police say something did happen. They looked into it. They've checked it out. However, they have not given up on the possibility that Kaylee had a stalker. Right, right. I mean, they're looking for any possible motive, right? And that that could be a motive that could tie all these pieces together if that was true. And we we have seen many cases where stalkers end up, you know, coming after the victim for whatever reason. There's a trigger, and then they they go off uh, and end up killing their their target. So that's a that's a theory that makes sense. So I, I you know I can see why people would like that theory and. And I think the police are smart to say, look, we're still looking into it because 
every time they clear somebody right away, it makes people go, did they look into it long enough? You know, and just because they found this one incident that they feel like, okay, there's nothing nefarious there, nothing suspicious. That doesn't mean that's the right situation, right? That may not be the stalker that that people are, are talking about. So they do need to continue to follow up on that. Another interesting thing here is that the the families, now that they're becoming more vocal, are saying, all right, we feel you've ruled out so many people so early on in the investigation. We are now asking you, police, why'd you rule them out? Tell us why you've ruled them out. It's a very intelligent question, obviously. Mm -hmm. But you as a former prosecutor, can the police tell us, should they tell us, when they rule someone out, why they've ruled them out? No, <laughs> I mean, I, I think the safest thing for an investigation it, to be protected is to not share, right? That's always the inclination of law enforcement and the prosecutor's office. Don't put information out there, especially one that is getting so much attention. Stuff can get contaminated. People can get involved and, you know, end up scaring off witnesses. Um, I, I can see how in a, in a small town like this, their inclination is they want to take these people off the hot seat, right? They don't want people to get canceled because they're under suspicion. I get that, especially in this day and age. But, you know, what law enforcement usually does is they say everyone's a person of interest until we know what's going on here, right? And it's not like just one person being focused on here. There's like, you know, a plethora of potential people that they could have just said, look, everyone's a, a person of interest and, you know, we hope that, and everyone's cooperating up to this point and we're still doing our investigation. And that way, you know, they're not making it sound like they've just wiped people away, but, but they shouldn't be putting out information as to why they've cleared them yet. That's the problem. When you say I've cleared them, then people are, okay, well then go ahead and tell us why. And yes. really the reasons why might be critical keys to the investigation and law enforcement purposely keeps back information so that they can use that to test against if you know they have a potential suspect. Okay, is there information about that suspect or that that suspect knows or that that suspect ends up saying that, that the you know, public did not know about. I mean, that's a common technique. So there's reasons why, you know, this information needs to be held back. Yes. And I do believe the police were upset without expressing it because you cannot be seen as beating up on the victims here, which are the the families of the four murdered people uh, for sharing the information of point of entry and that the two girls were in the bed at the same time that Right. And I, I thought that the police, what's interesting, when, when the, some of the families started speaking out over the weekend on Monday, I think it was that law enforcement spokesperson came out, didn't say, didn't call anybody out. They just said the information that was talked about over the weekend, we just want to make clear, was not released by us. In other words, for those of us like you and I who want to make sure that every piece we talk about is accurate, we're not, we're not, um, you know, we're not um, solidifying that. We're not confirming that. We're just saying, you know, we're not going to take anybody down for saying it. We're just saying we did not put that out there. So, you know, we're not saying that it's accurate. And mm -hmm. I, I thought that was a good way for them to handle it. Yeah, yeah. And and it's had a huge impact for, of course, without question, you know, four families have been destroyed here, completely mm -hmm. destroyed. They've lost their beautiful children in a most horrific manner around the holidays. I mean, let's just make things as horrible as could possibly be. 
Right. So you have four families decimated here. And then you have the greater community, which is a tight knit community. Everyone here was very popular and well known. So a lot of other students and teachers, you know, affected by all of this, uh, I think depending on whose report you believe, anywhere between a a third or more of the students have left Mm -hmm. the campus and have gone home and the university has been providing remote learning because if you can't tell us whether there is a killer on the loose, then our kids are not safe and we want them home or they don't want to be there. Now, the other thing I want to bring up, well, there's no proof of this. It's always something that does, I find, affect investigations. I find the most difficult cases to investigate generally involve anything connected to a hospital or a university. They are always very challenging environments. This didn't happen on campus, but... This is a university town. It is the primary employer, the university's name, and there has been discussions. I'm not even going to say speculation, but people have had very deep discussions on what influence, if any, the university is having or putting pressure. Obviously, they want this solved, but there are a lot of forces at work in a small town with very big interests, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that that is not an easy place to be. You're right. There are definitely in different areas, there are certain things uh, at work that can have a great influence that outsiders may not be aware of, may not be factoring into their analysis of what is going on there. And I think that's a very, very good point that you just made. I also want to say something about the families. You know, I I have great um, sympathy and empathy for them. This is a horrific thing to lose a child, like you said, at this time and in such a public and graphic way. And they were all just, you know, you hear about them, you see the pictures, they were just, you know, beautiful, vibrant people. Um, But I also have to say, after years of doing this, there are many cases that just don't get solved easily. And it comes down to the DNA. And that is why I Every day I'm grateful for DNA and for the advances in DNA and for the advances in using genealogical forensic DNA to find links to who did this, because sometimes that's what it comes down to. And in this case, it may very well be that. As surprising as that sounds, because like you said, it seems like there should be so many witnesses and, and different resources that they could turn to in this very populated area. But sometimes it comes down to that DNA and, and those cases take time and sometimes years to, even if you have the DNA, to find that link. That's why that genealogical DNA uh, is, is so important as a, a way to find those links. But sometimes it takes a while. Yeah, sadly it does. It does. And that is every day is very painful as you're the family waiting for answers. You know, police say they've recovered over a hundred pieces of physical evidence, 4,000 photos of the crime scene, and thousands of tips that have come in via email and phone. And it takes a long time to go through those tips and You know, I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen here, but we've seen in a recent case, I'm just going to mention Delphi again, where someone early on believed to have been a witness on the bridge, five years later goes from being witness to being charged suspect. And there was 
according to several reports, asking like, well, wait a minute, the guy admitted to being there and uh, other people saw him and he saw other people. Why wasn't he more closely looked at, especially if he was allegedly wearing clothes that matched the video that Libby took? And the response has been through unnamed sources, some kind of a clerical error where he was filed as witness, not a suspect, and somehow the dots weren't connected. That is a horrible feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's hope the thing is when you have that much, let's hope nothing is missed here. Um, the final thing I want to say about this that is very disturbing. Um, it just makes me really sad. Obviously, all the families are suffering. Kaylee's has been the most vocal recently. And the family told ABC News they haven't had a funeral because they are afraid that the killer is going to show up. And they don't want that monster there because they don't know who it is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's like another injury that they are suffering because they can't have a funeral yeah yeah i i I read that and i thought oh my goodness how devastating they had a memorial and the police said you know there's a good chance that the the person was there at the memorial because sometimes killers will do that they'll go back to the scene they'll get involved in the search or whatever it is and um for them to then take that and say oh my goodness we don't want this person anywhere so we're not now we're going to hold off burying our child. Um, that, that just compounds that grief. It really does. It really does. You know, I don't know what I would do in that case. I'd be I would feel violated if I knew that the killer was there. It would be like another injury to my soul. Everyone's got to do what they think is best. But yes, so many times, especially if the killer is known. Oh, they're leading the search party. Mm -hmm. They're holding the mother's grieving hand. They're hugging you at the funeral. Yeah. Yeah. So I can understand why they wouldn't even want to expose themselves to such kind of horror. Oh, it's like a violation, a total violation. Absolutely. Our next case is out of Paradise, Texas. This is where a FedEx truck driver has allegedly confessed to abducting and killing a seven-year-old girl. The delivery man, 31-year-old Tanner Horner, allegedly confessed to the abduction and murder of a girl who was missing at the time, seven-year-old Athena Strand. Horner was working as a contract driver making deliveries for FedEx, and he made a delivery, we are told, to Athena's house that day And I guess it's a more rural area. There was something about this. First of all, anything involving a child always upsets me. But I, I, Lonnie, probably just like you, I know just about every delivery person that comes. I've known them for years. I've known the postal carrier for years, the UPS guy, the FedEx guy. Do you know what I'm saying? And, And... It made me think about that because I'm always every morning I'm waving to them as I'm driving down. Yeah, it's unsettling, right? Because we have people delivering things every day and they are coming right there. I have to say, I guess I'm more um, um, always thinking about these things. So when people, 
you know, because I, I don't know all of my delivery people and, you know, my, my male person seems to change every week. So I'm always, when they come up to the door with packages, you know, I'm, I'm careful. I am. I just, you know, I, I don't usually open the door because I'm sitting there thinking somebody could just shove them their way in. If once I open the door during the middle of the day, who's going to hear if I'm, you know, something's happening. Um, so I guess I am. So, I'm one of those paranoid people all the time. Uh, not all the time, but I'm very aware, you know, sort of of my surroundings. And so but it is it's unsettling to think it's somebody that we have around us all day, every day in our neighborhoods and, you know, near our homes. And so, yes, uh, at first, it just really made me think about that um, and, and think about, you know, if I saw one of the drivers on the street, let's say, and my car had broken down, I probably wouldn't have thought twice about saying, hey, hi, can you help me out here? Mm, yeah. And there is a vulnerability there that you have clearly pointed out that I guess we all need to be even that much more careful. So here's the background. Athena Strand lived with her father and her stepmother. On November 30th, Athena was dropped off at home by the school bus around 4.15, according to reports. People Magazine reports that Athena had an argument with her stepmother. And this to me is like we're a lot of sadness and grief is going to live. Mm -hmm. So the two had an argument and the stepmother went to cook dinner, according to reports. And then she thought Athena had gone to her room and it wasn't until she checked on Athena that she realized Athena was not there and searched for an hour. So it sounds like, and this is how authorities, you know, kind of reacted to it. The sheriff reacted to it that the girl left the house because she was mad at her stepmom, that this has happened before, she's gone missing before, this is what the sheriff said. And so the assumption was the little girl walked away and was lost. That is why they didn't issue the Amber Alert immediately. Yeah. I'm I'm very disappointed in that decision. It was the wrong decision. Yeah, um, and this is something that really, I, I saw this a lot in the um, indigenous women cases as well. They put off, putting out the Amber Alert. And I understand that, you know, she'd had a disagreement with her stepmother. I understand they say that she has had run off before. She is seven years old. Yes. I have a grandchild seven years old. I don't care what had happened before. If I had looked for her for an hour, could not find her anywhere, I am not going to do anything but call that police and say, put that Amber Alert out immediately. I'm not waiting. Now, I give the law enforcement credit because they did a massive search for her before putting out the Amber Alert. But I, I just want to tell you a couple stats on Amber Alerts because I, I looked this up. They're now in their 26th year of operation. Uh, and as of May of this year, it has contributed to the recovery of 1,114 children. And the wireless emergency alerts has resulted in the rescue of 123 children. There are 82 Amber Alert plans throughout the United States. Not only does it help find them, but also they have found they can act as a deterrent because if the alert goes out, sometimes the abductor lets the child go because they realize that everyone's getting involved in it. But one of the flaws that they pointed out is when people wait to put out the Amber Alert, because the studies show that most about three quarters of the children that are abducted are killed within the first three hours. That's what one study said, within the first three hours. So if that Amber Alert is not put out almost immediately, it how much, you know, 
it's it's going to not do what it's supposed to do. And there's criteria that they have to follow through to decide to put out the Amber Alert. But um, in this case, the fact that she's seven years old, you know, it's a rural area. I mean, where is she going to on her own? Right. That they could get that far away. Um, I, I would have been pushing for that Amber Alert. And I'm with you. I, I'm so disappointed that it, it didn't go out. I know it, and there's no there's no downside to putting the Amber Alert out. The best thing you could possibly hear, because sometimes there will be this, I believe, with an Amber Alert, or you'll get a text saying that the child's been found. Right. Who among us doesn't want to receive this joyous news? Yeah. There yeah. is no one. Every single person on this planet wants to hear that if a child is in danger or lost and has been found. Nothing makes all of us, law enforcement, the community, everybody, you can blow up my phone telling me that these kids have been found. No downside whatsoever. Missed opportunity, huge. Even though the sheriff's department said that they believed that Athena was probably killed within the first hour, which works within the statistics that you quoted, and it would have been pretty much borderline on maybe finding her alive, but we don't know. Right. We don't know. Right. We don't know. So that is just a, hopefully law enforcement will learn from this and just just issue it. Just issue the alert. So um, while all of this is unraveling, this is before Athena has been found. Athena's mother and sister are telling police, hold on a second. They don't believe that our little first grader would run away. They're not buying this version of events. And I think that that's very important, you know, because just because this side of the family is telling you this, there's a whole other side that knows this child. And again, the cautious right thing to do, issue the Amber Alert. So um in the on the following afternoon, which would have been at two ten p.m., can you imagine? I mean, it's literally—it's not even the next morning; it's the next afternoon. On December first, the Amber Alert is finally issued, <sighs> and they're describing the girl as endangered. You think? You think maybe if a seven-year-old in the freezing cold has been missing since the afternoon before is endangered? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. All that time, too, before the Amber Alert, they searched. I mean, starting. So the the stepmother calls around 540. The police get there at 555. They search all night long until 430 in the morning. And then at 7 a.m., they expand the search and they're using volunteers. They have law enforcement. They have helicopters. They're using thermal imaging, drones, horses, dogs and ATVs. And they still aren't putting out the Amber Alert. I mean, do you think by that point, when you're doing all this search and you can't find her, do you really think she's just hiding out there somewhere, you know, on her own? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's amazing, the search response. I'm so impressed with that. Uh, I take my hat off to them for that. But once again, you know, the Amber Alert couldn't have hurt. Like you said, it couldn't have hurt. Just throw that out there. Missed opportunity. A missed opportunity. So, of course, you know, they're describing what she's wearing. She's so cute, wearing a gray and black long sleeve T-shirt, little blue jeans with flowers on them like you expect every seven-year-old to have, you know, little brown boots. You can imagine how cute she was. And um, sadly, you know, it's interesting that they start getting some information about FedEx. This, to me, was very interesting. Very interesting, like FedEx 
helped them gathering digital evidence of who was where at the time. And I want to ask you, Lonnie, I don't generally think about them, you know, I'm always thinking ring doorbells and other things, but when a child goes missing or a person is abducted, do authorities contact all of these, you know, um, kind of affiliated businesses that are constantly on the move that are picking up data as well? Yeah, I'm like you, I had not thought of that in the past, but I would think that they would be, I mean, this is modern law enforcement, right? There are drivers everywhere. Um, And in an area like this, that's a very smart thing to do is say, okay, who else was out there? Were there any deliveries going out there? And kudos to FedEx, you know, to be as organized, to be able to give that digital information and just turn it over, right? They, I'm sure they could have said, well, you need a search warrant or whatever. It doesn't sound like, it sounds like they cooperated right away, which I think is a very smart thing to do. Um, and, and we're really able to help identify the yes, person. Yes, very much so. Very interesting. But of course, you know, they're saying that there was a delivery to the house. So it would have been a natural question that law enforcement would have said, was anybody here today? You know, and, you know, oh, well, yeah, I got a package from FedEx. Yeah. FedEx. Um, right. So it's, it, you know, they confirmed that there had been a FedEx driver there. According to the FBI's Dallas office, quote, digital evidence and partnerships with FedEx, read into this, mm-hmm. cooperation. Finally, mm-hmm. I'm so sick of these big corporations that block everyone right. when, when it's an emergency because, oh, we're protecting everyone's privacy. Look, I get that, but it's a freaking emergency. A seven-year-old is missing and her life hangs in the balance. Right. Like these phone companies that won't unlock phones or something. I'm like, you know, you're talking about a murder case, you know, or in this case, a seven year old that, you know, could still be alive. Let's find her. Mm -hmm. I agree. So they were able to um, identify the driver that day in the neighborhood who went to the house. Authorities say it was Tanner Horner. He's the one who delivered a package. So authorities are now describing how they think this may have happened, that the Strand resident residence is pretty long and deep and has like 200 yards from the entrance to the nearest road. So I guess it's possible that if she, if, if little Athena is like, I'm, I'm done with my stepmom, I need, you know, a minute to pull myself together, marches out in her little brown boots, right? And she may have encountered, still been on her property, her family property, feeling safe on her property and may have encountered. That's what police say, that that's where that happened with the um, with the driver. So uh, the autopsy on Athena has not been released yet, but they believe that she died within an hour of the abduction. Uh, also, police have not said the manner of death. So um, I think that that's important. Like, I never have issues with police when they don't release these things. They have... They say that they have a confession, but as you know, these confessions change. And when it comes time to go to trial, oh, I didn't say that. Right. 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 I mean, that that information, if this goes to trial, will be very important. Um, But at this point, they have the person they think who did it. Apparently, they have a a confession as to how it happened. Uh, We're talking about a seven-year-old little girl. And so... I don't know if they need to release that right right now. I just, I don't know. And no, it's interesting, I, they, they said, you know, they they believe it was a, a crime of opportunity. 
you know, that apparently this guy didn't have a prior record. According to FedEx, they said, you know, we have all of our drivers go submit to a, a background check to see if there's any criminal record and we didn't find any. So, um, yeah, it's just so sad, so random, so, you know, wrong place, wrong time. Like, you know, if they just missed each other by three minutes, you know. Yes. I don't know. But, you know, but how can we say that when you're on your house, on your property, mm -hmm. and you're just a child, that it's the wrong time and wrong place. And yes, sadly for her, it was because he was on there. But you know what I'm saying? Right. That's Absolutely what kills right. me. Absolutely right. You would think that she would be safe. You know, every child should be safe, no matter where they are, honestly, you know, but then. it's not the world we live in anymore. Nope, not at all. So according to police, uh, Horner confessed, allegedly confessed to abducting and killing the girl during an interview. He gave them some details. Um, he reportedly gave police three possible locations where the girl's body could be located. I'm having an issue with that. I don't know why. You know, if you have killed a child, you know where you put them. Yeah, that is that is a, a good, you know, red flag right there that there might be something going on here, you know, so yeah, you've got a confession, but like you said, develop all that other evidence as well, because you're not sure what's going to happen with that case. I mean, if he's is he playing games, giving three locations? Is there some, you know, mental or physical or whatever, you know, lack of capacity? We don't know. So wh why would he give three locations? I don't know. It's very interesting. Athena's body was found about six miles southeast of Boyd, Texas. Again, why there? Uh, authorities have probably stated, as you've said, this is absolutely a crime of opportunity. And they say that they don't believe that there is any connection to the family or anything very personal. But what if he delivered to this home numerous times? What if he was the regular driver there? What if the opportunity finally presented itself while he may have been looking for it? We don't know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. so, so Athena's mother, um, Maitland, Gandhi shared on Facebook, according to Fox and People magazine, quote, I don't want her to be the girl known as the one murdered and discarded by a monster. And I found that really so interesting because parents, it's something that isn't, I think, um, vocalized, verbalized enough that really all of a sudden this precious, innocent, fabulous child has this horrific label forever. Mm -hmm. and that her life is tainted. Obviously, it's ended by it. And I thought, wow, that is just, you know, such a remarkable and deep statement. That that's not what you want for your child. You, yeah. you want her to be remembered for who she is, not what happened to her. And then she said, quote, she no longer has a voice, but I will be the best voice I can as a mother for her, and I will not stop. So this week, um, they had a candlelight vigil for Athena. Hundreds of people gathered, and her mother spoke publicly for the first time. Here's a clip from NBC DFW. I just want to keep her face and her story alive because I want everyone to know Athena for Athena and not for what someone tried to make her out to be. Because she's the best little girl. Obviously, the entire community is grieving 
They are all feeling this loss and supporting this family. The grandfather, Athena's grandfather, Mark Strand, who would have been so on the father's side, wrote, quote, I want five minutes alone in a cell with the psycho that took our Athena away from us. But there is a soft, gentle voice in the back of my head telling me I need to forgive him. Oh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So many complicated feelings that this brings up. And then FedEx has also released a statement. Um, this is after the confession and arrest. FedEx says, quote, words cannot describe our shock and sorrow at the reports surrounding this tragic event. First and foremost, our thoughts are with the family during this most difficult time, and we continue to cooperate fully with the investigating authorities. At this time, any further questions should be directed to law enforcement. He, Tanner Lynn Horner, has been charged with capital murder and aggravated kidnapping. He is currently booked in the Wise County Jail. His bail is set at $1.5 million. What a sad story. So sad. So sad. And, and, you know, people grieve so differently in so many different ways. Um, But that that grandfather's statement just hits home, doesn't it? Just Mm -hmm. everybody feels that, can understand that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime cases you all are talking about on social media. And our producer, Will Updike, is here with what y'all are talking about. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna. Hey, Lonnie. Great to see you. Hi, Will. All right. So this week we had a case of a dine and dash that nearly turned deadly for a Buffalo Wild Wings employee. So this case comes out of Willoughby, Ohio, where a female restaurant worker ended up risking her life by clinging to the hood of a car after chasing after three teens who dined and dashed. Now, apparently how this all went down was the three girls went into a Buffalo Wild Wings in Willoughby where they reportedly ordered around $115 worth of food, but they left without paying. So the manager chased after the suspects who were in a BMW. It's always the the person in the BMW skipping out on the check. Uh, And this employee, Kayla Sherman, followed suit. Now, they did the normal thing. They, They get out in the parking lot. The manager is trying to get the registration off the vehicle. And apparently the rear passenger, it was like a temp tag, and they just removed it from the back window. So at some point, Kayla Sherman, this employee, ends up on the hood of the BMW. Now, we don't have footage of this incident, but what seems like it was happened was she was likely standing in front of the vehicle and they accelerated towards her. Because when you see, uh, we do have some dash cam footage of it, but she's in kind of like all fours on the hood of the vehicle. It kind of seems like she's in a defensive position. Um, And so the teens drive out of the parking lot with Sherman still on the car uh, and police are, are there pretty quickly. I guess there was someone in the parking lot there and they're they're advising sherman to try and safely get off the vehicle right but the car starts driving so fast she's unable to get off this car uh the car turns onto a busy street and it's reportedly driving at like 50 miles an hour uh officers say that it might have accelerated to 65 miles per hour at some point with kayla sherman still on the hood of this car um, so we, we have, we have a little bit of, uh, footage here that we will show. So for our audio listeners, it's a little grainy, but like I said, you can, you can see this employee. She's clearly very scared on all fours on the hood of this car. And we just have this dash cam footage from a, a, a nearby police officer. Um, okay. So as if speeding 
off and like trying to get her off the hood wasn't enough. According to Kayla Sherman, she told the news out uh, outlet that they had a sunroof and they were throwing things like out of the sunroof at her to try to like knock her off the car. So they turn off onto a side street and eventually the employee is able to roll safely into into like a snowbank near the vehicle and a police car, another vehicle was close by uh, to, to take her to warmth and safety. And then this BMW later spins out uh, during a traffic stop. So the suspects here, uh, a 16 year old girl and two 17 year old girls were arrested. Weird side note on this. One of the suspects had been previously reported missing out of Cleveland. I don't know if that could have contributed to why they didn't want to pay. Like maybe they didn't want to have any sort of trail that they were with this teen. I'm not really sure. Um, And authorities also allege that they found marijuana in the car. Um, But Sherman told news outlets for someone who intentionally hit me over a hundred and fifteen dollar check was baffling to me. She added, how are these kids able to act like this? You hear about these young kids doing these crazy things all the time. It's like you have to teach your kids right from wrong. Now, miraculously, she didn't sustain any major injuries in this incident. Um, and yeah, that we'll see. We'll we'll continue to follow this one and I'll update anything in the comments if we hear anything more about these suspects. Um, a lot of people were a little critical of this extreme position for a dine and dash. Period said that is above your pay grade. Let them go, which I agree. I do think there were like sort of some contributing factors here, though, to where things escalated really quickly. I I, I really I was getting the idea that it, it wasn't her intention to jump on a moving vehicle and like really, you know, be the hero in this one. Rob D said, as DMX would say, don't do it, dog. It's just not worth it. I would say that to both parties in this situation, like $115 check. I mean, maybe you're missing or on the lam or something, uh, but it's it's definitely not worth it to escalate it with this employee involved here. AK said there's always that one overachiever at work, which I do hope they get an employee plaque or something like this. Also, I don't a know- A plaque? If they-, <laughs> they need more than a plaque, Will. <laughs> A trophy? I, I, they, no, they don't need she I, needs a good reward, a pay bump, stock options. Month. Employee of the year. <laughs> right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and like if some people are unfamiliar with how it works in the service industry, I, I think Ohio is one of the states where like if you work a tipped job, you can technically be paid lower than minimum wage. And mm-hmm. I it, it varies from restaurant to restaurant. I've, I've worked in a number of restaurants throughout growing up. And like some places uh, when someone dines out on a check, uh, like normal legitimate businesses have a fund and it's like, oh, OK, like that's loss. That's loss and damages. That's fine. Other places uh, are really nitpicky about it and they will take it out of the pooled employee tips, uh, which I don't know if that's the situation on this Buffalo Wild Wings. But let me tell you, real bummer on the night um nezzy said ain't no thing but a chicken wing um and my favorite comment uh was from dre who brought up uh, an, an interesting point saying 115 dollars for chicken wings is the real crime here which, <laughs> i gotta tell you i don't know what's going on with the stock we've talked about tyson foods a number of times in this segment but uh chicken wing prices are out of, out of control in la here i swear it's like two to three dollars for a wing at most places <laughs> Um, my partner's family is all from upstate New York. I go over there and it's like, it's 39 cents. It's insane. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what's going on with the, with the chicken stock market, but that might 
be something to look into investing if you're looking um, you know, for a wise future investment. Uh, but that is going to do it for today's comment section. want to thank everybody for sending those in. As always, you can reach out to us on our YouTube community page. We're very active there. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the usual places. And we are still continuing our quest for 5 million subscribers on YouTube. If you haven't already, please subscribe. Please tell your friends. We're very close. It's like 4.982. We're, 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 we're inching closer and closer. And we would love to have a couple of our frequent commenters and friends of the show come on for for, for a segment or two. Yeah, um, that's so how that, we're going to celebrate hitting five million. Is we're going to have all of you join us, um, which absolutely. will be fun. We haven't figured out how we're going to do that yet. It could be chaos, but it'll be fun. It'll be fun. <laughs> it'll be it'll, be, it'll be fun chaos. It'll be it'll good be chaos. Fun. Yeah, totally. Get involved. Get your friends involved and get a chance to get on this show. We'd love to have you. You all have so much to say. Like. Oh, this will be the funny thing. And then they'll get on the podcast and they'll freeze up. It's like, really? For years, you've been leaving comments, <laughs> pages and pages and pages of comments. And now you have nothing to say. <laughs> oh, I think they're going to be great. We have the smartest fans of any podcast. I, 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 I don't need to do the research. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Oh, we do. We have really wonderful people. We do. Thank you, Will. And Absolutely. Um, now we know what to get you for a Christmas gift. We're going to get you some chicken wings. Chicken wings. <laughs> <laughs> always. Always. Wow, Lonnie. <sighs> a very heavy show. Very, very heavy. Lots of um, serious cases. But, you know, I'm just glad in this last one with the chicken wings that the manager was not harmed. That was my fear. Yeah, because it, like William said, that really escalated quickly and could have been very, very dangerous for that woman. So mm -hmm. she was just trying to do her job, right? I know. And you know, I think sometimes, and, and maybe we're feeling this now, it's like, we're so sick of people getting away with things that, you know, I think it was more than just the dine and dash. It was more than the value. It was like, sometimes you just need to stand up for what's right and say, what are you doing? This is insane. Again, I don't think she intended to be on the hood of the car for that long. It was, right. I think she probably held on because she had no choice. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I get that. You know, people are sick of it. Enough already. Start behaving, people. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Your actions have consequences, you know? Yes. Yes, yeah. they do. Yes, they do. Um, and we are always seeking that justice for those consequences. So, Lonnie, where can people find you? You are so busy with all your programs, your commentary. I'm like, we can, you're like a moving target. Where can everybody find you? I'm still on Instagram and hit and miss on Twitter now. So yeah, <laughs> like I many know. people. I know. I'm, I'm like, we'll see how that ends up. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see if Twitter survives. I'm still active on Twitter. You can find me at Anna G News, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, sometimes on TikTok. I don't know. I'm not obsessed with TikTok like everybody else. Although, did you hear that on our case, on the Idaho case, there like been an extraordinary amount of videos on TikTok, you know, with theories asking questions on the Idaho college students murder case. So it's fascinating. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, and it we, me. it's amazing. Some of those TikTok videos are so good. I mean, just, you know, on all different topics, mm -hmm. not just that one, but it, like people really do their research and put out some interesting information. So and it, it makes sense to me that that would be where, you know, that age group would go to is TikTok. Mm -hmm. And we are technically and really on TikTok. Um, True Crime Daily is on TikTok. Um, I haven't um, gone on there to to see what we've up to, what we're up to next. But 
we're there. So you can find this podcast, all of our podcasts, wherever y'all get your podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can sign up for our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. So until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime. Don't do crime.